You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. Sometimes in our desire to be current, we end up jumping on something that perhaps we shouldn't have. Now, the obsession with the Titanic is something that I think has been with us well over a century. However, the terrible tragedy of the five victims of the submersible was something that caught everyone's attention, all the news services. Everyone was fascinated by it, and myself included. So Rabbi Pupka and myself, in our usual weekly discussion, thought that we could talk about this, which we did. However, at the time, there was still hope on that Wednesday that perhaps the sounds emanating from the ocean floor, the banging, was somehow connected to the submersible. It's now become clear that sophisticated Navy machinery was able to detect some sort of implosion even on Sunday. And our hearts go out to the victims. Um, Stockton Rush, the chief executive of Ocean Gate, who was piloting the vessel, his four passengers, Amish Harding, um, and uh, Shahzada Dawood and his son Suleiman, and Paul uh, Henri Najale, who was a French maritime expert who had gone down to these ruins a number. Anyway, here it is Emeritus Rex. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years or of. It's coming. First, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic, and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. And now, Emeritus Rex. 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pupko. Once again, we need to applaud the Canadians. Uh, it was a Canadian airplane and monitoring plane that was able to detect some sounds that are coming somewhere near where the submersible, the Titan that was on a journey to the depths of the ocean floor in the North Atlantic to view up close the Titanic wreckage site. But the Canadians were are leading in many ways this, this search for the five passengers of this tiny vessel. So Canada is out there. 
And it's their planes and their systems that are leading the charge to hopefully save the lives of these five people. I think there was very little air left in that little submarine. And I'm sure you uh, are aware we're all concerned about their lives. It really, I think, um, leads you to once again try to understand what is it that would drive a person down to the depths of the sea? And I'm sure you've thought about this as well. It's fascinating to me. I mean, uh, the Titanic is it's a long time, obviously, since it has sunk. It's a very long time. And uh, somehow it has always captured the imagination of many. Uh, it happened, uh, what is it, uh, I think, 111 years ago. Yes. And uh, on April 15th, 1912. You know, I may, for some, maybe it's the emblem of the uh, the power of nature to overcome human ingenuity. That means the Titanic was a remarkable ship of its time and on its maiden voyage and the dreams and hopes of its uh, designers, owners, passengers to go on this majestic ship across the sea, you know, for some in great luxury, for some in third-class steerage in great luxury and uh, the numbers of well-known people on that ship and then to have all those hopes and dreams upended by the permanence of nature, uh, by an iceberg uh, that uh, that slices the ship and uh, sends people into despair. It became an emblem of human hubris, maybe, uh, thinking, you know, we could uh, master uh, uh, the world and we're reminded we can't always do that. Is, isn't it ironic, then, that we have another technological marvel the Titanic in its gargantuan proportions was the the ultimate. But here again, we have in its in its unique, sleek perfection, the Titan, which right. is another symbol of technological human hubris, right? We can build this, this incredible vessel. We can get five people in there. It's made out of the most sophisticated metal. So isn't it incredible that these... These five people who are on board, who of course we have Rahmanas on them, but again, what is it that is pushing them? Again, human hubris to be able to do it. Instead of like, I guess, taking Musser that it's impossible, we're actually going to go down there and say, ah, hubris? <laughs> we're here to match that hubris. It, it does seem that the, this story, in many ways, as you put it so well, is in, in some ways a, a, a micro version of the larger narrative. Absolutely. And uh, listen, we wish them well. I mean, there are uh, continuous reports of some signs of life from the area. I don't know what that even means. Yeah, the Canadians, the Canadian crafts have picked up banging. I don't know what that means. Some sounds in the ocean, which they think is coming from there. And again, by the time this podcast airs, we might unfortunately be mourning or celebrating. Celebrating the rescue. But, but do, you, do you know the amount of, of, of effort that has gone in? The torpedoes that have been uh, that have been dropped to the ocean depths. I w- it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars a person, but I would say it's been dwarfed by the recovery effort to yes. recover these five people. There's been millions and millions spent to be able to do that. Yes. Billions, perhaps. Listen, you know you'll all, you know you'll have people talking about you know the ethical question of allocation of resources when you have reports all too often of migrant ships sinking between North Africa and Europe uh, and off the coasts of of Italy uh, and what's done for them, you know, in contrast to what's being done for these five 
uh, individuals in, a, in, in the van. Uh, these four billionaires, basically. Right, basically. You know, it's, uh, you'll always have voices like that. And, uh, you know, there's some justice to, you know. I mean, I, again, I mean, if you're on that little vessel, I mean, the terror you must be experiencing now. I mean, this slow motion potential demise, you know, in, in a horrible way of losing oxygen. There's only one little bathroom on there. And I, I was reading the uh, one of the writers for The Simpsons uh, who went down there, who went on the Titan right. last year. He mentioned the fact that it was a 10-hour descent. It takes you 10 hours to get down there. And nobody went to the bathroom the whole time. So it, it, you're right. It must be terrible and, and, and disgusting. And there's only a window the size, he said, of a, of, of, of a typical washing machine window you know, or a dryer to look inside there. It's a, uh, it is really... Listen, I mean, there is this search for adventure, the uh, social cachet of doing something very few have ever done. You know, I'm not sure what motivates people to want to do this. I mean, Stockton Rush, who was the CEO, who has actually the CEO who owns the, the right. Titan, is actually piloting this thing. Right. And he was inspired by the character who was played, of course, by Montreal's favorite son, William Shatner, Captain Kirk, going to discover places that had never been discovered before. Instead of space, he was going to discover the glory and beauty of the ocean floor. And we have to admit, uh, Rabbi Pupko, that in the, you know, in, in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, oh, oh, the oceanography and the photography of what we've seen of the ocean floor has been incredible. It, it is a world, a universe almost onto its own. Uh, obviously, you can't dictate to people what they want to spend on. And, and I think we are sort of caught up with this idea of trying to investigate, to find, to discover, push the boundaries of what human beings are capable of. So I, I recognize the, what the desire is. But I'll tell you one thing. I, I have no desire whatsoever to go to spend 20 hours submerging uh, to the bottom of the sea. I get claustrophobic under my talus during Duchenne. <laughs> Especially since the sight of what they would catch of the Titanic is just, you know, I know it's magnificent, but again, it's something I guess to put into their memory banks. Let's talk a little bit about something which I think is brought up every time the Titanic is brought up in any sort of Jewish forum. We talk about, of course, the, the sacrifice of Ida Strauss, how... Right. You know, it, uh, you know. Let's just tell our listeners, in case they're they've been living under a rock, that Isidore and Ida Strauss, who owned Macy's. Now, Macy's, I don't think was was necessarily formed originally in the United States by uh, Jewish people, but they were able to buy up shares, and eventually, by the latter part of the 19th century, they became the prime owners of Macy's. The Strauss family, they were philanthropic. They had great ideas about how to really fashion what the modern department store would look like. And there were German, as you know, in Germany and throughout Europe as well, Jews were at the forefront of the department store a surge that was really the rage. And Isidore uh, Strauss had actually been in Israel with his brother Nathan, the co-owners of Macy's. And Isidore and Ida went on this, uh, this maiden voyage of the Titanic, leaving from Northampton. And after the Titanic rammed into that iceberg, and in the three hours that it took to sink, when it was clear that despite the hubris you talked about, there was not enough lifeboats 
to manage the over 3,000 passengers, there was a decision that had to be made of who was going to live and who was going to die. And the nobility of the captain and the officers of Titanic was, it's going to be children, women, and older people. Strauss himself was only in his early 60s at the time, but that was considered old. And Strauss was actually offered by the officers of the Titanic a place on the lifeboat, but he refused. And once he refused, his wife Ida decided uh, that she was not going to enter the boat. She actually stepped into the boat. When she realized her husband was going to stay, she left her place, took off her fur coat, gave it to her maid, who actually was in the boat, and she died with her husband there in the Titanic. She said, I will not be separated from my husband as we have lived. So will we die together, is what she said. I think according to her great-grandson, she quoted the verses in Sefer Rus. Yes. Uh, Halachically, it's a very questionable decision to actually, you know, when you're given the chance to live. But she says, no, she felt they had lived enough of a life they had had them given to their children. I mean, giving the uh, the mink coat to the maid might have been a violation of Jewish norms. <laughs> she wanted to give it back, by the way. She actually found uh, the daughter that was still alive in New York, and the daughter said, no, this was my mother's present to you for you to take. And, and you know, of course, the Strausses were, were lionized in, in, in the Yiddish Composition, the Chorben Titanic, uh, the 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 Nasser Kever, the watery grave. I think the more important ethical question is whether or not there was room on the wooden plank for Leonardo DiCaprio. I think that's really the main question. Yeah. Cameron actually invited many uh, descendants as he could find of either survivors or people who had gone down to the Titanic, including the Strauss family survivors, and supposedly in the film. There is a depiction of, of, of Ida and Isidore there. Can we talk, let's talk a little bit about the brother who's, who did not get on the boat, Nathan. Nathan. Yes. So Nathan actually was more seemingly emotionally moved by what he was, what was happening in Eric's Israel at the time, um, the Aliyah that was occurring. And Nathan Strauss committed himself to doing whatever he could to better the lives of the Jews that were trying to live in Erauz, which is one of the first streets I ever knew about in Yerushalayim, because uh, when I got to the Mir Yeshiva on my, when I flew to Yerushalayim for the first time, I had to walk up the hill at Rehov Strauss. And uh, I discovered, of course, later that... And Rehov Strauss named for them? I didn't know that. Yes, Rehov Strauss is named after, yes. Come uh, on! Yes, can I tell our listeners something else here? I never, how, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know that. He also, by the way, the city of Natanya is named after Nathan Strauss. That you knew. Yeah, that I knew. The actual, uh, the actual widows and agunas of the, of the Titanic was the subject of many, many chuvas in the early part of the 20th century. About because many of those bodies couldn't be found, and right. they had to rely on aidus of, of non-Jews. It had to rely on the ship's manifest about were they on there or not. So it really was, in a way, uh, not a Jewish tragedy, but it was it was a, it was something that was, I think, central in people's minds. There was halachic issues, and of course, you mentioned before the steerage. We know that in steerage, although supposedly there are only seventy Jews on board, who knows in steerage how many. Jews were trying to escape Russia. And there, were, there was kosher food on board the Titanic. Yeah, they discovered, again, all the researchers have discovered, based on the other ship, the Olympia, 
where and they knew that was the same uh, procedure in the Titanic that they had co- uh, milchik inflation dishes. Right. There, there was a kosher cook. They had a, you could get a, if you wanted to, you could go with the kosher flesh. And it, I guess there was the mashgiach there. His name was uh, his name was Richard Kennel. <laughs> I think he might have been the co-creator of Kennel Ration. I don't know, right. but. He, he was he was the the Hebrew cook and mashkiach. And I think there was somebody on board who was questioning the hashkacha. So I think it's clear. Yes, and and it, it was really amazing that uh, you know the, what was happening because I, I think part of the funds they weren't necessarily from the high rollers. The other Jew, of course, Benjamin Guggenheim, uh, was of course a, a, a tremendous industrialist in the mining industry. A lot of the funding of that North Store lines came from the steerage people. The steerage people who didn't have the opulent accommodations, people wanted to get out of Europe. Uh, the pogroms and everything that was happening in Russia was pushing people uh, to get to America. And, and, and ocean liners like the Titanic were the way they all came. It's the way my relatives came. It's the way my parents eventually came. And therefore, it's not surprising, you know, that those those people in steerage in the third class, they needed to navigate their way against the tide of people. And most of them died. Right. The people who were saved were people like the Strausses and like who, who had the wealth to be able to be uh, on the first uh, in first class. So it really is a, an incredible story about, I guess, immigration. Um, as you Listen, say, I mean, the Jews of uh, 1912 were the Mexicans of today. We were the refugees coming, uh, the immigrants coming to America. You know what I found interesting? Um, that the fascination with the Titanic, it's really worldwide. And the most visited national park in the United States is the Great Smokies National Park. Right. I would like to say it's in Pennsylvania, but it's in Tennessee and in North Carolina. The reason why it's the most visited is because it's in the East Coast. It's in the East area. You don't have to travel all the way across the country to Yosemite or Yellowstone. You can go right to the volunteer state. Yes, yes. And that national park, the oldest of the national parks, the Great Smoky Mountains, is, is a tourist, obviously a tourist mecca. And one of the cities near Gatlinburg is Pigeon Forge. And Pigeon Forge has fashioned itself like sort of a Las Vegas style of attractions. And they develop, they have there a, it's not exactly to scale, but when you drive through Pigeon Forge, you can see the facade of the Titanic. Come on. Yes. And yes, you can see a, it's a giant ship. I am learning so much on, on, on our little podcast this yes, morning. Yes. You know what? I took a deep dive into this part of the <laughs> terrible pun. But, but if you, and, and, and that, that huge facade houses inside of it a Titanic museum. And the Titanic museum last, just a number of months ago, held a Jewish, the, a, a, the curator, developed Jews on the Titanic. From all over the country, people came. And Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg and that area of Tennessee is not filled with Jews. But many Jews have gone there. Many Jews have seen it. And uh, they have noted the, first of all, the story, as you said, the story of the refugees, the story of, of, of the sacrifice of the Strausses, and also the fact that uh, the Strauss's nephew 
was a very close friend, Nathan Jr., was a very close friend of Otto Frank, who, of course, is Anne Frank's father. Otto, in fact, worked for Macy's for a while. But the the interconnectedness between the Titanic, the Holocaust, Jewish experiences, I, I think it can't be understated. I don't think it's just a curiosity. You know, I, I think it's a... Uh, it's, no, it's, about a, it's about a seven-hour drive from your hometown of Memphis to Pigeon Forge. Yes, you are you are multitasking at an incredible rate. Yeah, I'm looking at Google Maps. It's not a, it's not an easy ride for you guys. Yes, yes, I uh, I I have to tell you that um, the Memphis community, along with the community in uh, Nashville, somewhat Atlanta, a little bit of Chattanooga, in the mid 1960s, began something called the Gatlinburg Retreat where communities from the South would meet. It was basically in October before the winter snows uh, would make the road somewhat impassable. And they would meet for a, a weekend of Torah. By the way, uh, Atlanta is closer to Pigeon Forge than Memphis. Yes, it is. Yes, of course. Yeah, you can. Yeah. So let me, let me <laughs> tell you, my, my first foray when I was um, about 11 years old we uh, we went to Gatlinburg with Rav Nota Greenblatt, who served as the Mashkiach. He was the Charles Kennel <laughs> of Gatlinburg. Wasn't he the Rav of the Confederacy? Wasn't? <laughs> yes, he might have had a Confederate flag somewhere uh, <laughs> underneath all his old sarum. I think near his his first edition of the Riff, he might have had there a Confederate flag rolled underneath. Rav Nota was a Veltzkoin, a prodigy that Rabbi Feinstein wanted as an Adam. He, he he amazed everyone he came into contact with. But in Memphis, sometimes he was reduced to chief cook and bottle, <laughs> bottle washer. Yeah. Yes. So he was the mashkiach. That's what he was going out there. And we traveled together. Now, suffice to say, <laughs> as happened numerous occasions, the vehicle that we went with uh, did not make it. And <laughs> in about 90 miles uh, east of Memphis, our vehicle needed to be shunted aside on the road. And... I remember we took a cab from Jackson, Tennessee to Nashville, and we took a Greyhound bus to Knoxville. Uh, and a cab from Knoxville under the winding roads, I think it's, they've been expanded up until this time, but we're talking about 50 some odd years ago. I will tell you on that bus ride, we were in the back of the bus and there was a little bit of light and Ravnota played a game with us, I and his two children. Uh, one of the children would read a Pusik from the Teira, and Rav Nota would, by heart, say the Targum of that Pusik. Are you serious? Perfectly. Perfectly. Right? Are he, you serious? Yes, yes. This was, this was what he was testing. We would, we would point to a Pusik in the Chumash, and he would, he would, Balper, say over the Pusik, I'll be the Targum. That's <laughs> unbelievable. Honestly. <laughs> And this was the man that had to make sure that, you know, what was happening in the kitchen. Now, I have to tell you, instead of Rav Nota speaking, they brought in Rav Shlema Freifelt, spoke in Machshova language. For years, you know, to me, I was in the little box. Right. And he was speaking about big ideas. He, the type of things that made Shar, that, that was able to turn Shar Yoshev into a magnet for, for so many seekers. He gave us, he distilled some of that by the swimming pool in the Holiday Inn in Gatlinburg so many years ago. So to me, Pigeon Forge and, 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 and this area 
it really, in me, it's steeped in Judaism. I'm happy that this, I this solidifies the Titanic Jewish link. I understand. We I mentioned about the, Strauss being a Zionist and a lover of Judaism, without necessarily violating too many details. Could you talk a little bit about this interesting case that you've been drawn into? Oh yeah. So there's a court case going on in Toronto. There was a store that had posted a sign, something like Zionists are not welcome. A woman signed in the Ontario suit at the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario claiming anti-Semitism. The store obviously is claiming that Zionists are not Jews. And uh, I've been called as an expert witness to testify that they are, in fact, inextricably linked and that it, it would be uh, uh, a grotesque disfigurement of Judaism to claim that Zionism is something distinct from Judaism. Are they, in their defense, this store, uh, are they using the UN's proclamation that Zionism is oh, racist? Oh, it's just their own political, you know, insanity. Obviously, this is not a business that you want to frequent anyway. We aren't going to eliminate anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. Do you really think it's worth all this effort for Rabbi Pukko? Again, I'm not saying that I would necessarily have... Uh, enthusiastically endorsed the idea of going to court, but an individual in the community did. And now that it's a case, you know, you got to support it. Uh, I, I certainly, uh, I'm not convinced it's a wise apportionment of Jewish time and resources to go after what I think is pretty much inconsequential. Listen, I mean, we could talk about the larger picture of the left turn against Israel, the double standards at the UN and everywhere else, as it relates to the conversation about Israel, about the, uh, not just hypocrisy, but the clear use of Israel's flaws to delegitimize the Jewish state, a selective reading of history, to put it as nicely as possible, and all of that. This is sort of like an Emile Zola Jacques type of thing. Yeah. In other words, it, it really, it's not that she wants to eat in this restaurant. She wants to, she wants the publicity to shine a light on this anti-Semitic attitude that she thinks is prevalent. So I'm sure that uh, if you use the same Satorian tones that you use here on our program, I'm sure your testimony will will be effective and perhaps can eliminate the scourge and send it 12,500 feet down (laughs) to the depths where we should never see it again. Thank you, everybody. Catch you next week. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.